0: The podcast.
1: This week, we are joined by the ex team manager of TWR and Jaguar Racing in the USA, Tony Dow.
0: JECpodcast.com.
1: Hello and welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you, back for a short break where I enjoyed some time in Europe in the Pyrenees rallying classic cars. I tell you what, it's nice to be out and about doing crazy stuff. historic vehicles once again Uh, i might add that we did win it and we got the team prize as well but uh, none of that matters now because i'm back here with you lot on the jaguar enthusiast club podcast and what an episode we've got ahead for you because well you can't come back without a big bang and a big bang is what we've got i'll tell you more in just a moment while i've been away we have announced a fantastic event for next year because of course 2022 marks the very beginning of the story of jaguar as we mark the founding of swallow sidecars it was the company of course that changed its brand name to jaguar in the 1930s and we're going back to blackpool to celebrate the centenary of it all starting It's a two-day event that will see you being given the opportunity to display your classic or modern Jaguar on the seafront at Blackpool and enjoy the festivities long into the evening as the illuminations are switched on. Members and local guests are going to combine with our cars and personalities from the Jaguar community to celebrate this momentous occasion with a a once-in-a-lifetime photo opportunity. It all began in 1922... When William Lyons was walking about in the streets of Blackpool, this is where he lived, and a guy from round the corner from him, another young lad who had built himself a really special-looking sidecar, one William Wormsley, caught his eye. He wanted to buy this sidecar off William Wormsley, and the conversation about buying that sidecar led the pair to start off in business. And for the first few years, in fact, William Lyons' dad had to sign all the checks for that company because he was just too young – To sign off big amounts of money, they got a loan from the bank that is now RBS. It's still there in the town centre of Blackpool and thus began the story that gave us Jaguar. So we're going to celebrate it. All we're looking for you to do is to put your registration of interest uh, to let us know that you want to attend. It's the 10th of September from midday to the 11th of September at 11 pm next year. That's 2022. And of course, it all takes place in Blackpool. You can find out more information and register your interest at events.jc.org.uk. It's going to be great to see so many Jaguars there celebrating what is also a momentous part of Blackpool's history as well. Now you've been getting in touch with us here on the J C podcast as you can do via jcpodcast.com clicking on the contact button there you can fill out the form or indeed leave us a voicemail and we had a lovely message from Philip Rico he's in the US and he's loved cars since he was a kid he fell away from them until he bought a 1993 XJ6 recently which was his dream car from the time that he was a teenager in school and awaiting its release following the spy pics of testing mules in the arizona desert that were later included in a promotional video for the car it goes on to say i began listening to the podcast as part of an incentive to walk an hour daily and it's always a nail biter the interviews are absolutely brilliant and even though some people aren't household names to me i end each episode just awestruck Obviously, they're all such interesting mix of people, from the lady running the Dutch organisation to the expert on Jaguar police vehicles and the absolute king of interviews, the one with Sir John Egan, who I remember from the magazine articles in the 1980s when he ran the company. Whilst I have his autobiography on my shelf, I've never gotten around to reading it, so the July interview was mesmerising. The man is brilliant, pragmatic, and really conveys a man who knew exactly what had to be done. He was a true blessing for us Jaguar enthusiasts. Philip goes on to say just how much he loved the interview as well that we did with GT Joey a few episodes ago it was a fantastic episode and uh, if you had a good laugh listening to that nothing like the laughs i had recording that with gt joe it was so good to have him on and he uh, as philip says knows the jaguar enthusiast world over there in the states like nobody else and uh, philip ends his email here by saying currently i'm starting on the young lady that'll be scarlet then who caters for younger enthusiasts and you both emphasize that one need not be an owner to be in the club i'm learning quickly that the jagger enthusiast club is not officious unwelcoming and a cliquish organisation but a group of people united in a passion for a great mark thanks for such wonderful podcasts that feed my brain but also encourage my physical fitness through walking phil rico you're very welcome and it's great to have you here with us every week on the jaguar enthusiast club podcast thank you so much for sending that note through to us and leaving the feedback on the episode you can do the same at jcpodcast.com you can get in touch there as well just use the contact button or even better leave us a voicemail on there and we'll record you and put you on this very podcast now if you enjoy hearing about jaguar's past this week's feature interview is going to be a real treat for you Originally from Western Supermare in Somerset, Tony Dow started racing in karting. Today, his impressive CV of racing teams and indeed famous drivers that he's worked alongside reads like a who's who of motorsport. In 1981, Tony Dow became chief mechanic with the Chaparral IndyCar team before being appointed team manager of Newman Haas and in 1984 he took the team and Mario Andretti to the IndyCar Championship title. However, in the summer of 87, following a meeting with one Tom Walkinshaw, he moved to Valparaiso in Indiana to set up TWR Inc. It would be the American arm of Jaguar Racing and TWR Jaguar. Whilst racing Jaguars at TWR his team won a total of 16 IMSA GTP races with the Castrol Jaguars including three Daytona 24-hour victories in 88, 90 and 92 with drivers like Martin Brundle, John Nielsen, Raoul Bozal. In 1990 Tony Dow ran one of the TWR team's four Jaguar XJR 12s in the Le Mans 24 hours and won the race with Martin Brundle john nielsen and price cobb at the wheel in this podcast tony dow is about to share with us some of the incredible behind the scenes stories from that era and gives us a unique insight into the phenomenal racing successes of twr jaguar in the late 80s and early 1990s our feature interview for this week then tony dow is next you're listening to the jaguar enthusiasts
0: club podcast to find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region visit jec.org.uk
1: Now, every week in the hall of fame with richard west we talk about big winners from the world of motorsport people who've changed the face of motorsport and our next guest Well, he could easily slot into Hall of Fame, but luckily we've got him as our feature interview for this episode. Strap yourselves in, guys. This is going to be a real insight into the history of Jaguars' victory in the 1980s with TWR. We are joined by Tony Dow. And if you look through his CV of racing teams and indeed drivers that he's worked with, it reads like a who's who of motorsport. He spent a lot of time working with our very own Richard West. So what I thought I'd do here is let these two guys reminisce for us and we'll just listen in. It's going to be a fantastic 30 minutes here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. So please do welcome Tony Dow, all the way from the Southern Hemisphere, and Richard West. Morning,
2: Wayne. Morning, Tony. Great to speak to you both. TD, I'll tell you how this came about. Wayne and I, every week, we sit down and, you know, we, we have a bit of a chat, metaphorically sit down on online about who we're going to talk to. And I was going back over some diaries the other day, and I have kind of realised that I first met you in, I think it was a Formula One paddock in the mid-80s when I was a McLaren man. But of course, we came together at the end of 88 when uh, I started working for Tom on the marketing uh, side of things. And I remember you were the very first person who picked up the phone to me. And five days later, there I was in uh, January 1989, sitting in your palatial office in the uh, Valparaiso headquarters of TWR America. And I think we should start there, really, because, as Wayne says, you know, looking back over your career, you're a bit like me. You've ducked and dived throughout your career and worked with some incredible people. But the thing that struck me most when I came to Valpo, as we call it, Valparaiso, was just how you had used all of your experience of earlier years, which we'll talk about, as I say, later, to create almost, and I'm going to say this and flatter you, a mini McLaren. I remember walking in the reception There was this huge TV screen, you know, TWR Valparaiso welcomes Richard West, TWR Marketing Group Director. And the second I walked in there, I thought this guy really understands presentation. But take us back, if you will, for our listeners to the start of well, the end of 87, the start of 88, when you started to work with Tom and he gave you the task of having a Jaguar racing team just weeks later, 12 weeks later, on the grid at Daytona? Because that was a, a fascinating story, which Martin Brundle mm. touched upon last year when we had him online doing a similar chat like this.
3: Well, it was, um, it was really interesting because I was working for Carl Haas in Highland Park, Illinois at the time. And one of the people that I had a lot of dealings with was a really, really good engineer called Ian Reed who was working for Doug Shearson uh, and had just designed an Indy car that really wasn't a particularly good car. And uh, we were at Indianapolis and I took him in for a drink and he was pretty miserable. An Indy can be pretty miserable if you're not going well. And uh, I said, why, why don't you have a Lola? And he said, well, could we get one? And to to give you some background, uh, there was only two in existence. uh, that both were with Mario Andretti, and they were the quickest cars at Indy that that particular month. So I said, you've got the money, I'll get you one, which happened. So Ian and myself had a great relationship. Travelling forward, uh, Roger Silman from TWR had approached Ian to be... Uh, the engineer for a IMSA program that would start in 1988. Ian called me and said, you need to get hold of this and um, uh, we'd have a great time working together. So anyway, he set up a a telephone call with Roger and I called him and uh, it was okay, but we agreed that... uh, we should actually get together at some point. Well, unbeknown to Roger, um, I was due to fly to England with Carl Haas and his wife, Bernie, to go and see Eric Broadley at Lola and uh, Mike Hewland at Hewland, as we were the North American importers. And uh, didn't exactly go very well because we... Number one, we were trying to buy Hewland to secure our future. And Mike Hewland didn't want to sell because uh, there was a lot of stock options involved. And he had seen how Keith Duckworth had lost out on his stock options. And when we went to see Eric Broadley, Eric uh, basically told us he'd had enough of uh, being screwed to the ground by Carl for pricing. And... um, uh, he didn't want anything more to do with us. The long of that weekend was I then went down to um, uh, Brown's Hatch to meet Tom uh, and Roger for an interview. Well, one of the good things about it was that one of the drivers was John Watson, who I'd worked with at Brabham. And uh, i had way too much coffee by the time I got there and uh, but we, we had a great conversation and he offered me a job and got uh, his PA Sarah to type up a contract which I signed without looking uh, only to find it was only for a year so I thought we better make the most of this. Uh, anyway at the end of the the, the we the, the Sunday meeting Tom said why don't you come up to Kidlington and have a look and I said look you want to go to Daytona, which is 16 weeks away, and uh, I'm sure I'll find a well-organized, clean place, but I need to go back to America, find somewhere for us to operate from and find a crew. And he said, right, off you go, lad, and, which I did. Um, I have to tell you, that was the longest 16 weeks of my life, um, and uh, it was winter. Which meant we were, uh, or it was about to become winter, and we were going to go through some horrendous weather. I, I had to convince Ian to move house, and um, I found at the midpoint between his house and mine, which was Valparaiso, Indiana.
2: Just to interrupt you there a sec, Tony, sorry, but for those of our listeners that don't know Valparaiso, clearly it's a it's a it's an outlying settlement village town um that sits not too far from chicago and of course carl has being chicago based uh most people you know chicago when you see it on the tv or you see pictures of it in the summer by down on the lakeshore it's absolutely magnificent but i remember visiting you in the january it's one of the coldest places on earth at that time of year isn't it uh,
3: it's where the uh, north american jet stream goes through so Yeah, you can have six feet of snow overnight. I mean, it really is. uh, It's bloody cold coming off the lake.
2: One question I never did ask you, though, was you're just talking about you just had to find the premises. That Valparaiso premises always looked stunning when you went there, when you'd worked your magic on it. But I take it when you took it on, it was just an empty industrial building, was it?
3: Yeah, I called up the local industry or, you know, the... uh, development guy on the local council and uh, said we're looking at a building and I drove down there and he took me around to see a few places and I could see uh, the, that building would would be quite easy to turn into something quite special and the fact was it was on a, a road that you could get a semi in and uh, blah 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 it was it was um, it all fell into place Mm. So the the next part of that was Tom and Roger came over to see what I'd found, and the clock was still ticking. So Roger wasn't really sure. Tom just said, yeah, go ahead, let's buy it. And it was over a million dollars, which we then bought um, Mm. outright. Mm. Um, But the next part of that was I had to find a lawyer Uh, that would uh, do all of this. And the the biggest lawyer in Chicago was a company called Sidley and Austin. So I called up and I got hold of a guy called Bert Austin, who was one of the partners, and asked him if I could go and see him. And I I went and I explained the whole thing. And, uh, yeah, no problem, we'd do all that stuff for you. Well, then I get a call from the, uh, the real estate people that they'd have an offer from someone else. And I needed to put a $10,000 deposit on the building by tomorrow morning. So I had no idea how it was going to happen. So I called up uh, Bert at Sidley in Austin. And I said, look, I have a problem. I need, I need you to loan me $10,000 overnight. <laughs> um, so I can get the building, and I'll get the company in England to uh, uh, to send you the money. <laughs> All simplistic, and lo and behold, he gave me ten thousand dollars. And uh, I called up um, uh, the finance guy at TWI, super guy John, and uh, they transferred the money. But we we got the building the next morning.
2: Thing is, Tony, just, you know, listening to you there about those early days, jumping into the bit now where, you know, you've got Daytona date looming. Martin talked about the test that you did at Talladega and all those things, you know, to actually get the car up and running. But having set up businesses and, you know, when I did the training centre in Melbourne, when we connected back in 2015 with the Pit Stop Challenge there, I know how demanding it is just setting up a building. not only were you setting up the building, you also had a tub arriving and you were starting to put things together with a new team of guys and girls ready to go testing and to go to Daytona. Yeah, what's a a, a genuine question? What was your average day? I mean, I'm assuming you were working seven days a week at that time, but how many hours a
3: day? But there were 18 hour days. I mean, the, the worst bit was that I was still living north of Chicago and driving down to the to the shop and moving things along and um there was an awful lot of times where i just curled up in my car in the back seat of the car with a blanket and slept in it until the next morning (laughs) um you, you just did it because you had to you know
2: Okay, talk, just talk us through. I mean, obviously, you were sitting there waiting, and I'm going to use this expression, but I don't mean it in any way disrespectfully to the industry. You were sat there waiting for a pile of bits to arrive from Kidlington. D- did you actually get a effectively a car kit in terms of tub, bodywork and components, or did you have to start already winding in fabricators and other local people to start putting things together?
3: No, we got, we got a kit of parts for the first car, mm-hmm. but... We were building, you know, I had a local builder that had been recommended to me. <laughs> he worked his ass off to uh, to get the building into shape. And um, there was a lot of um, areas that uh, had to follow on as we went along because, uh, you know, the, the clock was always ticking. Mm. And we were never going to... The, the, the worst bit was going to the first test at Daytona. Actually, it was even before that, we had to have a, a, a program launch in New York, middle of Central Park. And uh, so the car was finished. The car arrived um, in Chicago and it was snowing and uh, we loaded it into the back of a a transporter I'd borrowed from somebody and sent the guy off down the road to meet us in Central Park. So Ian and myself um, got up the next morning and uh, flew to New York, got to the hotel we were staying at, um, just off of Fifth Avenue, and uh, we went off into Central Park to, to meet the, and, and you, you had to arrange with the New York police, trust me, which is e- not easy, to get a semi-tractor trailer unit into the middle of Central Park to unload a race car for the launch. So we found out that they'd left the nose for the race car on the runway at Heath Road. <laughs> So I'm there. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. not quite sure. So I called up a guy called Ken Moore at Rapid Movements who had shipped it. So they, um, they found the nose on the runway still and got it on the next flight to New York. So when Tom and Roger arrived, I had to explain there was a you know a, a small problem and uh, you know, we might be a, you know, an hour or so out, out of getting this all put together. Of which there was a lot of long, long looks as to couldn't you organize a piss up in a brewery type thing? And uh, anyway, the nose, it, we, we had it all cleared through customs but even before it landed. So Ian and myself went out to uh, JFK Airport and uh, got through all the security and found the. Um, the nose but then we had to get it back to the hotel and so I got hold of this uh, taxi driver and got him to strap it to the roof of his car and we drove through Queens and all the rest of it from the airport back down into mid-Manhattan then I had to get it into the hotel and the only place was the executive suite to store it overnight and I had to, again, money had to change hands for that to happen. Uh, so the next morning we're up early and uh, Roger and Tom was everything. OK, yes. Yeah, all right. Don't worry. It'll all happen. And uh, so I, we've, the only way I could get it into uh, Central Park was I flagged down one of those uh, horses, uh, horse and horse. Uh, um, stagecoach type deals white white stagecoach things that gave people tours of the Central Park and we had the nose for the XJR 10 uh, XJR 9 stuffed in the back of one of these and we trotted into the uh, in on the green and took it out of the um, back of the coach and got it on the car about five minutes before the uh, announcement was made.
2: You know, you listen to these stories, people think that sometimes, you know, you make them up, but there's just so much goes on of the type of thing you're discussing when it comes to getting programmes together. I just want to, a little bit more detail, The and I've referred to this before when I've been talking to Wayne and our listeners, there were times when the relationship between Kidlington and Valparaiso was very competitive. Tom, you know, I've said this openly in forums, Tom actually was a bit of a bit of a Machiavellian character, and occasionally he he would put people against each other, with the end result being that, you know, you became more competitive, you got more out of it. Quite clearly, you know, between yourself and Roger and Kidlington, there was that competition, and I know you were always keen to show the metal of the North American capabilities of TWR. Let's spin forward, if we can, to that first test, because... I know you and I have spoken over a few beers occasionally about, you know, sometimes it would be hard to get informational feedback from Curtington, but you developed a very special relationship with Alan Scott as well, didn't you? And that played a very big part in getting that car to Daytona. So if you want to comment on what I've just said, please do. But, you know, in that comment, spin us ahead to when you first ran the car. What was it like after the launch? Well,
3: the, the first run was a Daytona test and... Uh everybody and their dog was there. And one of the problems was this was the car that had just won the world championship. So there was a, you know, hands off, don't you start modifying it to edict. Well, the problem was at Daytona uh, with the banking, the first thing that happened was all the oil in the engine climbed up the right-hand side of the cylinders and the left-hand side cylinders were, were seizing. Um, oh, and the bearings were fretting. Uh, the other thing that was happening was that uh, the, the right front wheel bearings were, were seizing and going out of fashion. And uh, you know, we were really struggling to, uh, to keep a car on the track. And uh, one of the problems is a political problem. Scotty wasn't such a big deal with the engines, he knew what he could go away and stop all the windage in the in the sumps to stop the oil going up the right-hand side of the motor. Front wheel bearings was a bigger problem because Tony Southgate wasn't particularly enamoured with uh, us new guys on the block halfway through a test telling him he needed to redesign the front upright. However, um, Tom saw the problem and had to go back to England and get Tony to redesign the front upright so that they um, uh, wouldn't fail. Because the first race we were doing was now about six weeks away and the Daytona 24 hours. And up until that point, no TWR car had ever finished a 24 hour sports car race.
2: It's interesting you talk about the oil problem, because I remember when I first came to Daytona in 89 with you, you and Ian Reid thought it was very funny because I kept saying, I can't believe how steep the bankings are. And you said, well, you know, in the interim, have a walk up the banking. And, of course, being half the age I am now, (laughs) I went scuttling up the banking. And then when you get up against the crash barrier, the outside wall, you look back down and it's like looking down the side of one of the great pyramids of Egypt. What is the banking degree there? I can't
3: remember. I think it's 29 degrees. It's either 29 now or it was 32 then. I can't quite remember. It's close to round about the 30 degree mark.
2: Yeah, the 32-degree mark, that, that does ring a bell with me, actually. I, I know it was fearsome, and I, I remember then thinking, you know, watching you guys, when I came out there in 89, you know, watching you work at it, it's a complete... Although it's a 24-hour race, it's a completely different thing to the Le Mans 24, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it's hard, physically harder, because, you know, when you start the race, it's, uh, it can be like 27, 28 degrees... Uh, celsius and three o'clock in the morning it's minus five you know something like that and yeah. it really is brutal in terms of how you um, how you put up with it
2: i'm gonna i'm gonna put you under a bit of pressure on this one but not time wise but just question wise because i'd like to then move us on to some of the other things you know like when you came to le mans in 1990 and stuff but moving us forward you went through the the, the test program kidlington was put under great pressure you had the politics which tom i think you know managed with you quite well in between you know you had support from alan scott scotty those pressures on tony in terms of the uprights and all those things you just made mention to wind yourself forward it's now the week of the daytona 24-hour race 1988 Brundle, the boys are all there what what was your thoughts going into that 24-hour race
3: well before i get to that there's just one thing on the test that stands out was the castro brand manager was a guy called john gardella mm. who who really didn't want to be involved with us his he wanted the money we were getting to go to a drag race deal that he was involved with yeah I remember and it, at the end of the test we we had an awful lot of dead engines and uprights and i'm on the way back to the truck and he he basically ambushed me with a camera crew and uh, the, the big question was well how do you think you're going to go in the race now and the only thing I could say to him was well we're going to win it aren't we <laughs> and I mean wh- what else do you say <laughs> um, well, was, you uh,
2: did, I know what you would have said if you'd been put under any more pressure so it's probably the more diplomatic thing to do <laughs>
3: yeah but, you know he's a, a major major league sponsor who didn't want to be there no. And, uh, you know, I had to say, you know, hey, this is racing. This is what, what it takes. Mm. Anyway, the, the week of the race, uh, we'd work. It was unbelievable. And we weren't, <laughs> Tom wasn't prepared to run two cars. We had to run three cars. We had the full on, uh, we had a whole load of um, import mechanics from Kidlington and we had, all the star drivers and so on, and uh, I know from my point of view, I was on my knees. Um, anyway, the 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 race. Uh, Tom and Roger were very surprised at how competitive the um, the cars were. We were racing against, and. Um, the, they were they were continually complaining. Why weren't we further up the field? Well, you know, a turbo car can turn the boost up for qualifying and make you look silly. Mm, mm. And one of the one of the things I, I I always tried to get people to remember was that the car we were running was designed for Group C racing. It just happened to fit IMSA rules. Mm. Uh, one of the problems that again, not many people would know, was that in Group C racing, it was a seven-litre motor. And having gone to Connecticut to meet with John Bishop, who was running him, sir, and a guy called Mark Raffa, the reality was that uh, we got handed down uh, uh, six weeks before the race that we had to run six-litre motors, not seven litres, which really put Scotty in a, in a hard place. Mm. Uh, so as well as trying to fix all the oil going up the side and so on and so on and so on, we had to reduce the capacity. And um, so none of that was uh, a lot of fun. Um, so in the race, we had a on the Brundle car, we had an electrical problem in the middle of the night. And uh, the guys did an awesome job doing a, a jump cable, and I think it was um, uh, one of the Porsches, uh, Jim Busby's Porsche, that led a long way. And they had some problems later on, uh, and we we took over. And it, at one point, we were looking to be first, second, and third, and we had one motor drop a valve, so we finished first and third in our first race. Mm. Mm. Uh, mm. That that was Chassis
2: 288, wasn't it, that won the race that then subsequently came to Le Mans in 1990, which your team engineered again. Yeah, Mm. yeah. 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 Um, I've 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 got to ask you, and, you know, like you, I've been very fortunate and stood alongside, you know, world championship winners and things. How did how did you feel when you stood in... Because Victory Lane is an experience at Daytona, which, gladly, I've experienced in 1990 with you and Tom and the others. But how did you feel in 88, standing there, looking at that car that had just crossed the line and you'd finished first and third? Just try and impart a bit of the emotion of that from a team manager's perspective for our listeners. Uh,
3: I wish I could do it again and, re- and understand what it all meant, because I was so... <laughs> Wasted. I mean, 18-hour days leading up to that for 16 weeks, uh, I was drained. I mean, I really, really was. uh, About an hour before the end of the race, I went off to the bathroom and I had a job to bring myself to not lock the door and stay there. I was just so wasted. Mm. Um, And afterwards, uh, Mike Dale from Jaguar took us all for a celebratory dinner And I actually fell asleep in in the food in front of me, you know, I mean, I was so, so then didn't have a lot of, um, 1990 was a much better deal where we had things under control, how we did it Mm. and, um, you know, what it all meant, but 1988, you wouldn't want to do that again.
2: No, and I I do remember, you know, coming in to join you in in 89, I spent a lot of time with you in the States, as well as on the Group C programme, around your IMSA programme, and you built that programme into a really strong force, which, you know, shocked some of the Porsche teams and the others to which you referred to, and Valparaiso, and then suddenly TWR America was a major international motorsport force, wasn't it?
3: Well, I guess it was. Um, You you know, when you're that close to the mirror, you don't actually lift your head and look too much on the outside. You're focusing on what you're doing for yourself, you know. Yeah, but, you know, you and I I both I guess, guess, look, I guess the the best way to put it is in 1990, we did Daytona, Sebring um, and a couple of street races Before we went to Le Mans, and as a team we were really sharp. Whereas the team from Kidlington had done one test in Spain, and that was it. So as a team we were pretty darn sharp. And uh, you know the so 1990 with Daytona and Le Mans was a lot more enjoyable.
2: Yeah, and I think also we need to reflect back on 89, because I remember in 89, there was this, you know, great photo shoot at Kidlington where Wayne is this morning while we're recording this, and we set the five cars up out on the Kidlington airfield, and we had Tom there at five in the morning, and all the Silk Cut Jaguar team were there, and we had great expectations, and of course, 89, you guys were, you know, running riot in the States at IMSA, but the Group C programme wasn't doing as well. And of course, Peter Sauber had put his Mercedes super team together. We got roundly trounced at Le Mans in 89. And it was then really that Tom, and I remember a meeting between Tom, you, me, Alistair, you know, all the engineers saying, right, what do we do to make 1990 or so special? And of course, you, get, you kicked it off for that fantastic victory at Daytona again in 1990. And I remember being part of that unfolding. I've still got this wonderful picture of the two cars in the early mornings up on the banking, signed by you and Tom and Lammers and various other people. Uh, And it was really, really special, wasn't it? 1990, when you consider TWR was a dominant force globally in 1990. And you guys came over, of course, and played an integral part in the 1990 win, which if I can be as bold all these years later, was yeah. the most popular thing in Kidlington, was it, when you when you engineered the winning uh, car?
3: No, it wasn't. It was, um, uh, you know, you're aware of... Uh, I, I'd got fed up of just turning up at Daytona to make the numbers up. And if you're going go to go uh, to Le Mans to make the numbers up, if you're going to do that, you do it to win. Now I've thought about it many, many times. You couldn't do what we did then. Now you couldn't do. You know the the deal at Daytona was that the two cars raced each other for 24 hours and uh, won it easily. Mm. And it rewrote the way you 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 know there was none of this cruising or so. And both cars wanted to win desperately. Mm. And, you know, I had to hit Ian Reed in the head with a, a signal to stop him trying to pull stunts in the last half an hour to, to try to win. Um, but going to Le Mans, um, I had to box so clever to get away with what we got away with, because, mm. again... You'd be fired. You, you couldn't do it with any, you know, whether it's Audi or Porsche or anyone. You couldn't have one person um, dictating the way you went about doing a race. You know, you, you, it's now so corporate. Mm. And one of the things with Tom was he backed you, and that was one of the nice bits about it.
2: Yeah. In fact, we've talked a lot about that on the on various podcasts about, you know, Tom Wood, if he thought that you were on a winning streak, if he thought you had the right idea, irrespective of any internal politics or strife, he would back you and push you forward. I mean, that 1990 race at Le Mans was very special. And one of the things, of course, when I talked to Martin Brundle last year, we had a similar conversation to this. I, I tried to draw Martin... Deeper into the conversation about how he ended up in the number three car, and Tom took one of our other drivers out, of course, who, you know, has lamented that having not been the Le Mans winner ever since. How did you see Tom making that change towards the end of the race when he put Brundle in the in the lead car? Right decision.
3: Oh, it went. It started way before that. I went to dinner when we were taking the car apart on the um, Friday after qualifying. Um, we looked at the gearbox, and uh, the dog rings and gears were pretty rooted. And uh, the only guy that could have done it was Alicio. So I went down and saw a guy called Julian Randall, who Alessio had driven for at Spice. Sorry, asked, let me
2: just let me quantify that for our listeners who are perhaps not familiar. Uh, the, the gentleman I'm talking about, who was taken out of the car towards the end of the race and replaced by Martin Brundle, who subsequently won it with um, John newison and Price Cobb was our friend Alessio Salazar, who at that time was actually one of the crew in the number three car that ultimately won, wasn't he?
3: Yeah. When I saw the damage to the gearbox, I knew we couldn't finish the race if Alessio was in the car. I went and saw Julian and had a conversation. And in the conversation, I asked how bad Alessio was on the dogs. And he said, oh, he's, he's bad, blah, blah, blah. So At dinner on a Friday night with Tom and Martine and somebody from Jaguar, and I can't remember who, um, I suggested to Tom that my strategy for the race would be to keep Alessio out of the car until Sunday morning when, um, you know, Price uh, in particular and John Nielsen would be quite tired. So we'd have a fresh driver in the car. And I said, on the other hand, if one of the other cars uh, has a problem, we should be able to slot them in instead. And he agreed to that. So um, in knowing full well what would happen, uh, Brundle had a water pipe that had been uh, improperly manufactured, let's say, and it sprang a leak. It cracked a weld. And uh, so he was out of the car and Tom came to me and he said, are you sure your car can win? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't be here otherwise. So he he said, you better tell Salazar he's not in the car. I said, no, that's your job. And we'd already had some face-to-face discussions because the European team had selected the tyre compounds that we were going to use and i knew that they were wrong after what we did at daytona so i called up um, a friend of mine at goodyear in akron and i bought 12 sets of the right compound rear tires uh, which were harder than what they were using and i got ken Moore of um, rapid movements to ship them over So when they arrived, I had this tyre guy, Kenny Szymanski, the American Airlines steward, who rubbed all the the great,
2: One of the great characters of the pit lane. We could talk forever about Kenny, an incredible guy who lives in New York. Got his own little museum and everything there. Amazing guy.
3: Anyway, he buffed off the the markings off the side of the tyres. So (laughs) very early in the race, uh, we would double stint in the tyres, and the European team were having to change them every stop. So after about three stops, Tom came and had me up against the wall and said, what's going on, laddie? And I said, well, Tom, I didn't believe the the compounds that were being selected, so I brought my own ones. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he said, you better give me some for Brundle. So I gave him two sets, um, which I thought was quite magnanimous. But uh, that was one of the many, many things that went on in the background to that t- yeah. uh, to that Le Mans win.
2: I actually remember I was talking about Martin last year, you know, I was, we had those two motorhomes that Chris Lees, our motorhome man, and I had been over to the States with you and bought and shipped back. We had our two big motorhomes there catering for everybody. And I remember seeing Alessio sat in the back in floods of tears. And I went in and Tom just looked at me and put his hand up and said, not now, laddie. And a couple of minutes later when it was, you know, Brundle was getting in the car, I said, what was that all about? He said, it's called Winning Le Mans. And I okay. was—I remember that steely look, you know, that he gave me at that point. But it's interesting for our listeners, again, because, of course, all that stuff that's going on in the background, you never ever get to hear about, which is why these are so insightful. Um, interesting, you say that you could hardly stay awake and you fell asleep at dinner. After that 1990 win, I remember my job was to go back to the chateau and set the dinner party up for about 40 people. And I made the fatal mistake of laying on the bed and saying, I'll just have five minutes to freshen up. And when I woke up at half as 10 the next morning, the dining room was full of champagne bottles and there was still a trophy on the table and everybody had left. And I was the last person in the chateau. <laughs> I'd missed the entire dinner, so you'd have my sympathy. Listen, I mean, this, we could talk about that that era. Just, just,
3: of- just, just one thing on that. When, when the race was over and we'd been everywhere and had so much champagne, Tom had his own a Mark III XJ6 there, which was a gorgeous car. And he got me to take him to the Le Mans airport and gave me the keys to the car and said, somebody will take it back to Kidlington. Thanks. You know, you did well, laddie. So yes. I had to drive back to that chateau. I was so drunk and tired. And I went off the road so many times that I couldn't, you know, trying to keep myself awake. And when I got back to the chateau... In the reception area, there was a horse sleigh from, that was one of the Russian Tsars in the, in the right. reception, and I climbed into it as a, as a <laughs> this was my time to drive a Russian sleigh, yeah. and they went ballistic, it was a million dollar sleigh, you know. We're
2: starting to go down the road, bad stories now, and in a minute you'll probably tell everybody how you and Brundle got me arrested in Montreal, but that's another story. Um, I I think what's important with this one, you know, you've been, not only were you with Tom in the 90s, you know, during that incredibly successful Jaguar period, probably people don't know, but I mean, you were team manager of Ligier from 93 to 99, and you were also sharing time with Arrows Grand Prix. And then, of course, from 2012 up until last year, you were with the Walkinshaw family in the Aussie Supercar Series. And I think, you know, there's obviously something that kept drawing you back to the Walkinshaw family. What was it, really? What was that passion that wanted you there all the time?
3: Well, I mean, it's pretty simple. It was Tom. Mm. Um, I watched a documentary the other day about John DeLorean mm-hmm. and yeah. you know if you watch that the way this documentary was laid out Tom wasn't a great deal different to John DeLorean he took risks like you couldn't believe mm. I was in Chicago with Tom once um, I picked him up he'd flown in from Japan and we were having dinner in this restaurant uh, just off of the Magic Mile And Tom jumped up from the table and rushed out, got got hold of this guy that was walking up and down the street outside, and it was a guy called Lindsay Fox, who Mm. runs the biggest trucking company here in Australia, Lynn Fox. And he had seen him at the corner of his eye and dragged him in to have dinner with us. Well, Lindsay Fox was responsible for TWR having Volvo in the BTCC because he was the largest uh purchaser of volvo trucks in australia and tom got Lindsay to tell volvo if they didn't sponsor him in the uh btcc he would stop buying trucks and go elsewhere
2: <laughs> there's a deal for you tom was an opportunist and he was also in formula one my favorite team owner that i worked for was ron dennis and certainly my sports car experience with Tom, like yours, was was all about the man. You followed the man, and in fact, when we went to Tom's memorial service at Gloucester Cathedral several years back, you know, it was just full of the good, the great, and the infamous. And I do remember talking to several people there, you know, and they said, you know, what, what, what did TWR mean to you? And it was it was Tom. I mean, when he was flying high, he was fantastic.
1: It was an era in which there were great technological strides happening but they were being driven not by big corporations or labs as you see in motorsport now but by personalities as you've already touched on Uh, do you think that you could have taken jaguar to victory with all of those imsa victories daytona and at le mans in 1990 could you have done that in the modern corporate structure or was it all down to the freedom that people like Tom invested in you as a team manager? Was that the reason why that victory was possible?
3: You couldn't do it in the modern era. Um, You know, it's a very simple equation. The more money that you have, the more pressure there is both internal and external to anything. And when you have that amount of money, you have all these vultures circling as to how they can get their fingers in it. So you couldn't do it nowadays. just too much money.
2: Yeah, not only that, I think, to be fair, you know, also the corporate lifestyle has changed things so much now. There is much stricter governance. There's much tighter regulation on the way that, you know, sports are run. Technology is restricted in terms of agreements. And we're just in a different era. And I think, you know, one could say the same about... Any business sector, if you look back to the industrial revolution in the UK, could people nowadays even contemplate, you know, the labour and the buildings and the pollution and all those things? Of course they couldn't. And I think it's just, it goes with the times, as that great saying, as my dad used to say. But it's just different now, as Wayne said at the very beginning. The corporates now, particularly in the world of sports car racing, strategy is not decided by a team principal and a team manager having a quiet meeting between the motorhomes. It's decided by large groups of individuals, strategists, meteorologists, financiers, even the stakeholders representatives. So we do live in very different times, don't we?
3: Could you believe, well, you can because you've seen it, but I could not believe that Ron Dennis could be flicked out of McLaren.
2: No, I was very shocked by it when it happened because, as you know, I mean, cut me in half, I'm red and white, you know, I still have great pride from those McLaren years. And interestingly, I spoke to Bernie the day after and I said to him, I'm really shocked about, you know, Ron leaving, you know, leaving McLaren. And Bernie said, two things you have to remember. He said, Bruce McLaren started McLaren, but Ron Dennis made it. And I think, you know, when you think back, you said earlier on, you know in all seriousness when I said to you what did all those Walkinshaw family associations mean to you and you said well it was because of Tom and I interviewed Indy Lau who's a long-standing McLaren guy who was yeah. on the race team years ago you know Indy well and I interviewed him on camera at the McLaren 50th and I said sum up McLaren for me he said two words Ron Dennis. and yeah. I think if you if you think back and I was actually going to Pull us away from some of the more controversial stuff. And I was just going to say, when I look back, you know, there you were Enzyme, Brett Lunger Racing, Brabham F1, Wolf, Newman Freeman, Carl Racing, Chaparral Cars, Newman What What is it in a nutshell, without focusing in on any one individual, what, what are the characteristics of those men that have been so successful or otherwise? In running those global organisations, those race teams, what makes them so special?
3: It's really hard because um, you know the world is in a constant change, and I suppose in we're all we all arrive at a point in time where all the stars align and you make the best of it. And I think I've been fortunate to arrive in various points in time where I've been able to make the best of it. And mm, yeah. um, that's about as good as you, you know, um, uh, you know. Richard, my daughter has done phenomenally well here in Melbourne with a, a, a ad company. And she still dines out on the fact of some of the things I did. Um, mm. Mm. and I, every now and again I'll get an email from her she's out for dinner with people and she's explaining what her dad does and you know you end up uh, you know doing and, and it's really cool that younger generations uh, you know can pick up on so, do you realise it's Sean Morganshaw's birthday today
2: is it really well if you are yeah. listening to this Sean very happy returns many happy yeah. returns to you indeed yeah, it's interesting talking. I mean, Tony, we could go on forever in a day. You know, you can make a series out of this stuff, really. From my side, it's always been a pleasure working with you because, you know, in those early days when we worked together, you had Castrol Jaguar. I was over on the Silk Cut programme. We traded a lot of ideas and a lot of standards, you know, that had come with me from F1 and your experience over those years as well. And um, you've had, and still are having, I know, because you're down there engineering some fantastic cars belonging to collectors ranging from single-seaters through to road cars. But ultimately, as ever, it's always brilliant catching up with you. But I've got to just finish from my side on one thing. Whenever I look back over the drivers I talk about in the Hall of Fame or Richard Remembers or whatever, there's one word that always, always, always comes up, and it's karting. And if I go right back to 1970... There you were as a mechanic at a cart preparation company, Merlin Developments. And I'm going to give the game away. In your garage, and your premises down there in Melbourne, you've got a cart that you've been building for about the last five years. It's probably one of the most technically advanced carts I've ever seen in the planet. You still love it, don't you, carting? It's a real passion.
3: Yeah, it's what Senna said. It's pure.
2: That's interesting. That is interesting.
3: absolutely pure. I... I worked with a, a kid in karting called David Ferris, who had so much talent it wasn't even funny. And uh, he got into a March Formula Three and got a chunk of concrete hit him in the head uh, at Silverstone. Uh, but he, his abilities were, and you could see, you can see, in karting people that have the ability to make it. It's almost a
2: relaxation for you building that, isn't it?
3: Well, it's just, your brain can't stop thinking of how to improve things or, you know, there's uh, things that uh, you think, well, we could do that better or we could, and so on. So, you know, time passes. You aren't going to, I'm not going to get in and run another TWR Jaguar, but I can still run a i can put a cart together off out of my own wallet that is as good as anything that can be done and uh nobody says no and that's again another great thing
2: spoken like a true engineer i do recall just to sort of bring your comment about you know you can always make it better i remember with john barnard at mclaren at a particular race we were at we were fastest On Friday, we were fastest in practice and qualifying on Saturday. We were fastest on Sunday morning warm-up, and we won the race one and two. And JB was sat in the motorhome afterwards looking a bit glum. And I said, what on earth's the matter? He said, we could have been quicker.
3: (laughs)
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: (laughs) And that, I think, is a timely moment to hand back to you, Wayne, because we've been online for quite a while. Over to you.
1: Well, you asked Tony what makes these people successful and in in a way of explaining what he does with carts I think he just answered that question for you there Richard. A real honour Tony to have you on the Jaguar Enthusiast podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been brilliant for me because my whole career was kick-started by the imagination that I was grabbed with in the late 1980s when my dad came home from Le Mans and told me all about the Jaguar TWR a victory there, and uh, that is something I've held on to for the rest of my life and has uh, given me the career and the life that I've enjoyed ever since. So it's down to heroes like you that people like me enter motorsport and uh, enter the industry. So uh, thank you for that as well. And as you look back on all of the drivers that you met, if you could take one driver from that TWR era and race with them again, who would it be?
3: For reasons you would never understand it would be Martin Brundle, uh, but there were some awesome guys like um, Eddie Cheever and uh, uh, so on like that that were really, really good. Um, uh, there was also some that we shouldn't have put in cars, but you know, Brundle was a great motivator. And, I'm and, uh, you know, I get a... he runs the Grand Prix Trust and that says an awful lot about the the way the guy thinks about um, the people that he's seen over
1: the years the only people that don't like martin brundle are american hip-hop artists i understand of course uh, richard spoke to martin brundle some time ago now in fact over a year ago you can find that interview and many more via the podcast page at jcpodcast.co.uk uh, but for now tony dale thank you so much for joining us
3: thank you very much wayne and richard
0: You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Tom's Jaguar Racing Diary. Sharing the knowledge, drama, and innovation from behind the scenes of the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship.
1: well tom will be telling us all about how his season rounded off at mallory park next week on the podcast but this week we'll be hearing from the md of the jaguar daimler heritage trust of course a novice driver in the season this year on his thoughts on the final round of the jaguar enthusiast club championship here is matthew davis
4: you find me at mallory park for the last um, meeting of the season and this is my last diary really, this is the last time I've to call myself a novice so I'm here with my XJR6 and it is filthy, it is pouring with rain here and uh, it just couldn't look more uninviting I'm looking at the uh, pre-66 touring cars streaming round <laughs> with rain spewing off their rear tyres so um, this is um, going to be quite an entertaining qualifying session we're hoping so we call it 10:20, then we're first race after lunch so we're sort of all hoping that we can tiptoe through quality and then the rain will blow through after lunch so whew, i have to say i'm pretty nervous i came here pretty chilled but it wasn't raining then and now i'm looking at this track and i'm feeling quite nervous so um i'll come back and tell you how quality went so that's the first race um it, well, it had dried up a lot, thankfully it stopped raining, but God, the track was slippery. And um, I was at the back, started at the back. I think there was something wrong with my transponder, but um, I think the truth of the matter is I'm slower than everyone, so I just went off from the back, and everyone sort of pulled away from me a bit. But um, I really had trouble finding the right line around there. It was very, very slippy on the right on the racing line. There was a lot of sort of build up of rubber, and it was just very hard to get grip and um, then coming around into the sort of uh, at the end of the of the second straight into the sort of complex coming up to the hairpin all through there it got really really slippery and I just kept losing it in there some epic slide and grabs and throttle steering and all the rest of it I think I'm probably using the wrong gear around there so I need to have a look at that Um, But anyway, it was um, fun to watch. I mean, the qualifying saw two cars go off with a really big bend. So Tom and Dan both, um, Daniel really chewed up their cars and and, uh, Connor did an amazing job getting Daniel's car back. And so we all started and we all finished. I think Tom had a big excursion, which let Mike get through and off, um, but he managed to hunt him down. And... uh, it was, it was fun to watch from where I was. It's was quite good because Mike and Tom lapped me, so I was able just to follow them and learn a better line through the bit that I just kept getting wrong. So that, that was useful. I could see, see myself dropping two seconds a lap with that. So it kind of got better as I went on, and I found where to pick up speed, and I did pick up speed, but I'm still a long way off. You, you just really realise when you do this how much time everybody else has had in the cars and how much you've got to learn um, and I've still got a lot to learn but anyway so far so good um, I've enjoyed it although it's been scary and I think we've got the last race is about 350 and looking at the weather app it looks hopefully like the rain will stay off so hopefully all these other cars will dry things off for us for a bit so fingers crossed we um, keep it dry and have a less slippery second race but i'll come back and tell you all about it hi there well that's it that's i've just done it i've done my last race of the season and um (laughs) if you've been watching youtube you will have seen what happened if not i better explain so i uh was at the back again, usual position, and got some good drive out of the first um, turn. Gerard's the big swooping right-hander after the start-finish straight. And I'd learned from the first race it needs to be on the outside line of that, because it was, um, uh, there's much better grip out there. So I got round there and managed to start going round the outside of a couple of cars to my inside. Um, so suddenly the car hooked up and really drove forward and I thought I've got to move on here and I started getting outside two of the cars and then just as I thought there's a move on here I can get round I just touched the grass off I went into a beautiful double pirouette and narrowly avoided an XJS, narrowly avoided uh, the, the big green X300 and skated across the grass and narrow it avoided the Armco protecting us all from the lake so it was quite spectacular and I found myself miles behind everyone else I think at the end I got double lapped by the fastest, well pretty much most cars um, but it was a really good experience I got the track to myself and just started every time I got lapped I just hooked behind whoever was lapping me and just saw what they were doing so I managed to pretty much knock two seconds and a lap off with each of those sorts of little insights that I got from firstly um Mike and, and um Tom when they went round. Their line um up towards a sort of hairpin really showed me how to do it and that, that definitely got me two seconds. Then I realised I've been going round, chatting to the lads, I've been going round in third too often. I don't even need third on that course, except up at the uh, hairpin. So when I started using the higher gear, that helped with the times as well. So all in all, I, I managed to get a 102, which is nowhere near good, but was a lot better than where I'd started. So it was all quite useful, quite a good experience. And I think I can see what I need to do more. It's definitely taught me that um the super long list of deluxe upgrades that i'd like to do on the car for next season probably the money is better spent getting someone like ray to do some real seat time with me and, and and give me proper instruction everywhere so i think that's going to be a priority for next season and um and i think there's nothing wrong with my car it's just me so that's the bit i've got to focus on in the off season But anyway, it's been brilliant fun with the racing. I I would definitely recommend anybody that's sort of teetering on the edges of it to dive in and get stuck in. The grid's looking really exciting for next year. Just looking at the WhatsApp chat uh, with the drivers group, I think we've probably got as many as six or seven new cars um, due to come in. I've been trying to strong arm a mate of mine that was about to buy an Alfa to do classic touring cars into to switch back over to a Jaguar so fingers crossed we can get him in and I think the series is looking potentially dead exciting for next year so um, be interested to see who next year's novice is and, and I'd urge you all to try and come and watch us one day it's been great fun but final thoughts are congratulations to Mike Seaborn that guy is supernatural how he made that XJ40 give Tom the race he did I do not know and um and there have been some brilliant brilliant challenges at the top of the of the order there so you'll see it all in on the youtube and we'll hear tom talk about it in more detail but uh the racing has been fantastic and even at the back i've enjoyed it so thanks for listening and uh look out for us all next year cheers
1: That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages don't forget you can also join the jaguar enthusiast club online by clicking the join today button on the top right hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic glossy 130 page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC.
0: This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.